Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, we discuss the Washington Nationals' win over the Houston Astros to win the 2019 World Series, and two major, and I mean major, anti-corruption matters which broke this week. The first, of course, is the guilty plea of the Una Oil CEO and COO. Second was the agreement to forfeiture forfeit all goods claimed by the U.S. in the civil forfeiture actions uh, brought against J. Lowe in the 1MDB scandal. Of course, the Hoskins trial began, which is a, a very significant FCPA trial. We look at what are the stakes for corporate wrongdoers and consider the material controls weaknesses announced by Mattel. We look at a quid pro quo Primer by Rick Messick, and how the Crown Prosecution Services review of the SFO may impact the SFO going forward. Finally, Mike Volkoff on how board can take five steps to improve its monitoring. All on this week in FCPA. For the week ending November 1, 2019, the congratulations to the Washington Nationals edition. Thanks so much for listening. We discuss the upcoming baseball playoffs, but Jay, of course, tries to make it about the Patriots. All on this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance of angels back with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, for another week of this week in FCPA, episode 178 for the week ending, November 1, 2019, the congrats to the Nats edition. Yes, my beloved Houston Astros did not win the World Series this year, losing in seven to the Washington Nationals. So congrats to Lisa Fine and all those other Nats fans out there. But beyond uh, the tragedy of the Astros not winning the World Series, we had two huge, and I mean mega huge, stories in the anti-corruption space or or, uh, international anti-corruption space that we're going to talk about. Una Oil, uh, guilty pleas from the CEO and COO, and J. Lowe agrees to a $700 million forfeiture. But there's a lot else that happened this week. So, uh, Jay, you want to uh, start us off? Yeah, this is a story that we've been following for a while. Uh, Former Alstom exec challenges the reach of the FCPA. And uh, this comes to us from Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, a former Alstom executive mounted a direct challenge to the long reach of the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act on Monday, the first day of a trial in a case that has raised key legal questions about who is actually the subject of foreign bribery law. Lawrence Hoskins was a former senior vice president for the French company 
and was charged in 2003 with helping to organize a scheme to bribe Indonesian officials for $118 million power contract in violation of the FCPA. The U.S. government's investigation of Alstom ended with the company resolved its own FCPA violation in 2014, but the case against Mr. Hoskin has lingered for more than six years. So uh, those are the facts of what's happening now. And basically, uh, the argument, the way I see it, is one group, the government is saying that Mr. Hoskins uh, definitely was in a decision-making capacity for Alstom. He sought out the individuals that needed to be bribed and set up the whole scheme. Uh, Hoskins' uh, representatives say that he is a British citizen, that he was not in a decision-making capacity with Alstom, but was uh, in, a dis- in a position where he was uh, working under them, but they had the final approval. So besides Dylan's article, we have a couple real good articles that we link into Law 360. Uh, unfortunately, they're behind a firewall, but if you can get a, um, get, get a look at them, they're saying what is really at stake is the case is drawn eyes from the white-collar defense bar as it represents a rare test of the FCPA's limits of trial, as recently the law was more often used to charge corporate defendants and obtain settlements instead of verdicts. So we have uh, perpetually talked about times where the uh, individuals who are um, prosecuted under FCPA are far less than what we've seen from a corporate perspective. So I know this is an interesting matter to you, Tom. What What are your thoughts? So this uh, really is interesting, Jay, because uh, basically Hoskins has admitted to having engaged in bribery and corruption. That's really not the issue here. The issue is the breadth and scope of the FCPA. And frankly, if foreign subsidiaries of U.S. companies can engage in bribery and corruption um, at will, then the FCPA is pretty much eviscerated. So uh, this is, I think, a critical case. His uh, claims that others above him approved the bribery and corruption, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to get him there. because simply because somebody above you approved your illegal act, whether they did it implicitly, explicitly, or in, with a nod and a wink, I think uh, that's that's not going to inure to his benefit. The defense uh, started out, I think, their opening statement with "Why are we here?" and that's going to be their theme throughout this case. That he never set foot in the United States. Allegedly, money didn't go through the United States. There was no communication through the United States. Um, and they're going to try to convince the jury that uh, under the facts that the government has to prove to create the agency relationship here and thereby U.S. jurisdiction, that they simply don't exist. And as long as they keep hammering on that, you know, they have a chance. But the reality here is um, he's, pro- he's admitted to bribery and corruption in uh, prior statements, and now he's just got this um, – kind of jurisdictional claim. The, uh, the other thing is, and, and I don't really know how to, sh- how to come down or come out on the following, this case has literally been going on forever. We've got bribery allegations that are 15 to 20 years old. We have an investigation that is 10 to 12 years old. We have charges against the defendant that are six or seven years old. Um, and talk about a life disruption 
um, the um, how Hoskins can move forward through all this. He has claimed that this is completely beyond the pale of a speedy trial, and I have to agree with him there. And that's something I think the Department of Justice is really going to have to look at if they want to try to move forward with individual prosecutions. They need to do them on something close to a timely manner. Nevertheless, they are at trial. They've survived all of his claims of delay and obstruction, and now it's down to what the jury uh, determines. So it's going to be very interesting to uh, to see. But if a, a subsidiary of a U.S. company can engage in bribery and corruption, um, that's going to be uh, uh, and, and claim that it wasn't at the direction or knowledge of the uh, parent. That's going to be a pretty powerful uh, tool to eviscerate the FCPA going forward. So one of the other uh, big stories we promised was uh, your favorite mastermind from 1MDB. What is your pal J-Lo up to? So, Jay, this is just stunning. And, and when I see say stunning, I mean absolutely effing stunning. J-Lo, mastermind behind the 1MDB uh, bribery and corruption scandal, agreed to a $700 million settlement with the Department of Justice around all claims, let me emphasize that, all claims by by the United States uh, in its asset forfeiture program or initiative. There were uh, numerous lawsuits filed in the United States and in other venues to recoup and recover property that J-Lo had stolen or at least purchased and obtained with money stolen from 1MDB. This is by far the largest um, civil forfeiture action ever. He agreed to it in full um, with uh, the Department of Justice's allegations. Uh, there had, this will have no effect on his criminal uh, matter. Uh, he has been indicted in, I believe, the Eastern District of New York and in Singapore and may well be in other venues as well. Uh, so he gets no cover or credit uh, on his criminal side. Uh, for his side, he he actually, some of the rare instances I've seen where both sides touted the agreement was in their favor. Uh, and J-Lo released a statement saying uh, that um, this was a result of good faith negotiations. Um, they came to a resolution with the government. He had to admit nothing. Uh, there are allegations in the forfeiture complaints, but they're simply allegations. They don't prove anything in his eyes, uh, and he's ready to move forward. Um, a lot of commentators have noted that his lawyers get paid. As a lawyer, I'm always glad when lawyers get paid, so that doesn't offend me one iota. Uh, in fact, uh, I think the lawyers should get paid so he can have representation in these matters. But his lawyers got paid $15 million, and the rest is going to be divvied up by the United States and divvied out to uh, no doubt, uh, 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 Malaysia and, and perhaps other countries. The scope of this, Jay, was literally across the globe. Uh, I looked at the um, uh, parties who were involved in the investigation, and of course you would expect Singapore also, excuse me, Malaysia, also Singapore. But in Europe, we had the Duchy of Luxembourg. We had uh, Switzerland was heavily involved. Multiple U.S. jurisdictions were multi- uh, heavily involved, and, and really just a stunning settlement. As I said, the largest ever. Uh, so one more piece of 1MDB is now resolved. Uh, if uh, J-Lo ever gets to a place where he can be uh, arrested and extradited, I'm sure the U.S. government in Malaysia will do that. He's uh, alleged to be in China under protection there. At some point, the Chinese may want to give him up. Who knows? But uh, kudos to the Justice Department. Kudos to the uh, all of the lawyers in the uh, 
asset forfeiture initiative. And of course, kudos to literally investigators literally across the globe, and particularly those in Malaysia who continue to investigate this, even with the prior regime, which uh, ordered them not to do so. Um, They really moved the ball forward in the global fight against bribery, corruption, and fraud. Well said, Tom. Uh, Next up, we have a story that comes to us from NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. Uh, from a team of attorneys, uh, Avi Gesser, Daniel Forrester, and Meng Ziyu. Um, The NYAG Dunkin' Donuts cyber case, one more sign that the days of stick for cybersecurity enforcement may be around the corner. Uh, Over the last few years, the creation of new cybersecurity regulations has been robust, but actual enforcement has been tepid. There is considerable uncertainty on the part of regulators as what is required In addition, companies that experience data breaches are often victims of a crime. There are several explanations for this development. First, there is a sense among regulators that companies have now had sufficient time and warning to understand what reasonable cybersecurity measures look like. Second, successful attacks are putting significant funds in the hands of cybercriminals, which not only incentivize more attacks, but also allow criminals to invest in better tools. Third, there's a growing consensus as to which security measures are essential to protecting confidential data of employees, customers, and partners. And finally, after conducting cybersecurity exams of hundreds of companies and investigating dozens of breaches, regulators are better able to differentiate between A, companies that made reasonable efforts to protect their data but nonetheless were breached, and B, companies that fell far below the reasonable standard in their preparation. Uh, As we've discussed here uh, in this blog before, the New York Shield Act, which includes substantive cybersecurity requirements, came into effect on October 23rd. And uh, they take a brief look in this article of uh, the Dunkin' Donuts case, where there were uh, people's uh, customers' debit cards, which had stored value, and they were repeatedly attacked. The Duncan case serves as a reminder to companies of ways they can reduce cybersecurity enforcement risk, including avoiding overly positive and unqualified statements of privacy, developing a realistic incident response plan, conducting regular assessments, remediating vulnerabilities, complying with breaches, and ensuring the accuracy. But the Duncan Donuts case is also a sign that even in the absence of cybersecurity-specific regulations, With growing political and consumer pressure to do more to protect personal data, cybersecurity appears to be on the rise. Right. So I guess the the message I got from that piece, Jay, was we've all known about the cybersecurity requirements and what goes into a a cybersecurity program. And now the regulators are going to start assessing fines and penalties when those programs are breached. So uh, begin to expect to begin to see uh, more of the stick and less of the carrot. So next up, Tom, uh, the DOJ clarifies stakes for corporate wrongdoers. What's Dan Portnoy writing about? So Dan Portnoy writes over on Sarah Croft's blog, The Grand Jury Target, and he took a look at the DOJ announcement uh, earlier, or I guess last month, We now it's November one. Uh, which rolled out uh, a new memo for or a memo detailing policies for corporations settling charges that they are unable to pay. And in uh, this was uh, from Brian Benchkowski, the AAG. And what we saw is in the memo, Jay, 
was a codification of informal practices that the Department of Justice had around uh, payment of fines and penalties. Uh, there had been instances in the past where companies had been given credit or, or reduced fines and penalties for their inability to pay, but it wasn't quite clear what the standard was. So this memo uh, made clear its uh, standard is an 11-item questionnaire, which is thorough and, and uh details uh, specifically what the uh, department's looking for. The memo lays out the most relevant factors in assessing a corporation's ability to pay. They include background on current financial conditions, alternative sources of capital available to the uh, company, collateral consequences, which include um, not only staying in business, but paying re- uh, retirees' pensions uh, and uh, the like. And then finally, victim restitution considerations. Um, the um, memo itself, I think, is very useful, very welcome. The uh, Dan's article points out that this uh, adds another layer of discretion to prosecutors to reduce criminal fines, but that uh, it only comes into a play after a settlement of all charges and the calculation of full criminal fine under law. So companies can't come in uh, begging poor ability or inability to pay and somehow get their penalty reduced. Finally, a corporation's ability to pay uh, its uh, criminal penalty and stay viable does not take into account the timeliness of uh, the self-disclosure, the level of cooperation with the government, or the remediation. Those are all part of the FCPA uh, corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein two years ago this month. So those are still in play. But as Dan notes, it's heartening to see the DOJ remain focused on bringing white-collar criminals, including corporations, to justice while taking care to limit collateral damages, i.e. protecting employees and retirees. So a codification of uh, things that were informally done before. And once again, when you can have transparency, I think that's always good. Certainly something we saw earlier this year from criminal division in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs 2019 guidance and really would seem to be a hallmark of the Brian Benchkowski administration over the criminal division. Good stuff, Tom. Uh, next up, we have a story coming to us from the FCPA blog from its founder, Dick Casson. Uh, DOJ unit oil bosses have pleaded guilty to FCPA conspiracy. The former CEO and chief operations officer of Monaco-based Unit Oil pleaded guilty in March to arranging millions in bribes to officials in at least 10 countries, and a former Unit Oil business development director pleaded guilty in August last year, the DOJ announced on Wednesday. Former CEO Cyrus Asani and a former COO Saman Asani, both UK citizens, pleaded guilty on March 25th to one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA. They conspired to facilitate bribes on behalf of companies in foreign countries in order to sell oil and gas contracts. In August of 2018, Unoil's former business development director, Steve Hunter, also pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA. Cyrus and Saman are sons of Atta Asani, the founder of the intermediary unit oil, and the family is originally from Iran. The offenses occurred from 1999 to 2016 and involved multiple companies and individuals as co-conspirators, the DOJ said. 
They further said that Cyrus and Saman Asani laundered the proceeds of their bribery scheme in order to promote and, and conceal the schemes and to cause destruction of evidence in order to obstruct investigations. In June this year, a former Unioral client, Technique FMC, paid the DOJ $296 million for FCPA violations in Brazil and Iraq, and the firm also paid the SEC $5 million. Another Unioral client, Netherlands-based SBM Offshore, paid a criminal penalty of $238 million in late 2017 to resolve offenses in Brazil, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Kazakhstan, and Iraq. So, uh... Good, another scoop broken by um, FCPA blog and Dick Casson, and uh, justice marches on. So, Jay, this is the other just major, mega, huge uh, event that occurred this week. Uh, Una Oil may be, if not the one of the biggest FCPA scandals, uh, literally uh, for well for a long, long time. I don't know what the fine and penalty is going to be. Una Oil doesn't exist anymore, at least not in the form it was. But look at uh, just uh, some of these numbers. The offenses occurred from 1999 to 2016. 1999 may be a different era. Uh, certainly a party like it's 1999 with Prince when he was with us. But um, 2016, it's very different. Uh, everyone knew about FCPA enforcement. And for companies to continue to uh, engage Una Oil and engage in bribery and corruption as late as 2016, obviously speaks to a very, very bad culture of compliance, culture of following the law, and culture of not paying bribes and engaging in corruption. The breadth and scope of government officials, once again, let me just read the list, Algeria, Angola, Aberdeen, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Iran, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Libya, Syria. Um, The bigger thing, uh, the biggest takeaway for me, Jay, is, it's not simply the Ashanis who are paying bribes here. They're paying bribes on behalf of companies. So every one of those countries I named, every one of those countries you named, there was a company attached to payment of that bribe. I hope they have not only investigated the allegations that uh, involving the conduct of the of Unioil and the Ashanis, but they have self-disclosed to the Department of Justice because you better believe the Department of Justice knows about them. The significance of the guilty pleas being taken in March and not released until October cannot be underestimated uh, or understated. That means that the department did not want this information out because of the continued cooperation of the Ashanis. And obviously they're, they're playing for their probably uh, lives in terms of not a death penalty, but certainly lengthy prison sentences. So they are very well uh, motivated to cooperate in by, by pleading out uh, over six months ago before these uh, pleas became public. Uh, it really communicates to me that they are significantly communicating with the Department of Justice. And every one of those com- companies that retain them needs to be scrubbing that as furiously as they can and getting in front of this and getting in front of the DOJ although it, it may be too late at this point. I'm sure the DOJ has the full customer list of Unioil, as well as the Serious Fraud Office and probably other regulators uh, in uh, Brazil and in other countries across the globe. So this, uh, I think, could be one of the biggest scandals ever, if not around the money, 
certainly around the number of companies that were engaged in bribery and corruption through UniOil going forward. So uh, next up, Tom, we just celebrated um, Halloween yesterday. So that means Thanksgiving and Christmas are right around the corner. Uh, Why don't you tell us about what's happening with uh, one of my Southern California companies based in Hawthorne, uh, the Mattel company. What does Jacqueline Jager from Compliance Week have to tell us? Jay Mattel is in a world of hurt, and they um, had a whistleblower who uh, raised an issue about an income tax expense that was understated by $109 million in the third quarter of 2017 and then again in the fourth quarter of 2017. Material, excuse me, Mattel um, investigated this and determined that the whistleblower's allegations were uh, valid and that there were material weaknesses in the company's financial statements. Uh, They have not yet announced a restatement, but I'm pretty sure that's coming. The uh, CFO of the company, uh, in a really odd uh, resignation statement, said he was resigning effective immediately after six months of transition work uh, to get a new CFO in. Uh, Whenever you have a... um, um, these sorts of allegations founded uh, to be found to be uh, at least valid. Uh, that's serious, seriously uh, bad for a public company. They're going to have to restate. There's going to be a huge fine and penalty. Um, the whistleblower, uh, uh, it's unknown at this point if they've gone to the SEC, but I would suspect they would have. There were allegations that the uh, independent, the lead audit partner of Mattel's outside auditor, who was not identified in the article, um, was uh, some, somewhat less than independent and uh, provided recommendations to the CFO and candidates for senior finance positions, which may have violated the SEC's auditor independence rules. Um, it's just a, a re- very big mess, coupled by the, the fact that neither the audit firm nor the company's internal controls picked this up, but rather it came through a, uh, a whistleblower. So a uh, big mess for one of our top toy companies for Christmas, and hopefully they can move towards cleaning it up. So, Jay, I think you are continuing your new series on uh, CCI, uh, I think around sort of the theme of M&A. So I've wanted to ask you, does a merger partner need to be an ethical fit for an acquiring company? It's a great question. Uh, As you said this week, I took a look at the impact of mergers and acquisitions on both the acquired entity and the acquirer. And uh, surprisingly, a company's ethical and cultural perspective is not often considered in pre-acquisition phase. Companies spend huge amounts of resources hiring lawyers, investment bankers, and accountants for the pre-acquisition phase, but these com- these bankers and attorneys are really more anxious in getting the deal over the finish line and collecting their fees as opposed to taking a look and seeing if the company, the acquiring company, and the target are a cultural fit. Uh, we found in situations like this that during the pre-acquisition phase, it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel to perform ethics, cultural, and compliance due diligence some of the deal team are already performing due diligence for other parts of the transaction. The question is, is are they looking at it through the correct lens? 
Are there, or are they just not looking at it at all? Are they looking at the robust robustness of revenues that come from the revenue stream? And is there a way to trim expenses and achieve some financial synergies? As I discussed last week in my column, one of the biggest risks is around ethical culture and fit. Most companies, most companies, and usually the senior management of the target company have a very strong financial incentive to push the envelope when it comes to finances, financial projections. Uh, projections, rather, the acquirer should assess the organization's humans' capital when it moves forward. A lack of knowledge of each party's culture can lead to many problems in the post-acquisition phase. Sometimes it's been found that by using an independent third party comes with credibility and experience, which allows employees at the acquired entity to freely communicate their concerns in a way that may be helpful to the acquirer. The key is that the independent third party expert uh, in practice, rather, I'm sorry, the key is, is that independent third party experts. Unfortunately, in practice, this option is often ignored and can lead to serious FCPA exposure. Uh, Please take a look at my column next week when I'll take a look at how should your how should you plan out your post acquisition merger strategy? So, Jay, next up we have an article that looks at the uh, inspection report by Her Majesty's Crown Prosecution Service Inspectorate of the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, over on the FCPA blog, Sam Tate and Charlotte Thompson uh, wrote about the report. They detailed some of the key findings of the report. Uh, which included that unused materials were handled well and good examples of consideration of material and disclosure strategies. Cases were accepted for investigation in good time, but there were delays after the cases were uh, taken up, and that the SFO had clear internal casework processes and an operational handbook. Um, I was a little disheartened by this article because it said, quote, as a result of the findings, the Crown Prosecution Service, rather inspectorate, made seven recommendations. Uh, the article said what these recommendations focused on, but it didn't list the recommendations. So um, I'm not quite sure this was as positive for the SFO as this article lays out. Uh, it really details a series of problems that things just don't move very quickly at the SFO, whether that's because of lack of resources, lack of headcount, lack of uh, technical skills, lack of abilities in terms of uh, crunching numbers and crunching large amounts of data. Uh, for whatever the reason, things just seem to go in there and and uh, don't come out. The current director, Lisa Ofsovsky, um, has uh, closed multiple investigations of very high-profile cases such as Rolls-Royce and GlaxoSmithKline uh, because simply they were taking forever and they couldn't or wouldn't reach a resolution. So uh, the SFO, I think, has a fair amount of work to do, uh, obviously funding issues, and uh, at some point, the Tories tried to get rid of the SFO. That was under Theresa May. They were unsuccessful uh, with uh, the uh, salacious Bojo running the show. Who knows? And then who knows who's going to be the next uh, prime minister of Britain after their next election in December. So lots of questions, I would say, uh, about the SFO going forward. So uh, next up, Tom, we have something that comes to us from the Global Anti-Corruption blog uh, from Rick Messick, who uh, talks about a word that we've heard very often in the press these days, quid pro quo, a primer. 
Thanks to the Trump impeachment in Broglio, Americans are brushing up on their Latin, or at least on the Latin phrase quid pro quo. Through Trump's partisans and opponents at each other's throats about virtually everything, a consensus has emerged that if his dealings with Ukraine involve the quid pro quo, he is in trouble. The reason the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the touchstone of the American federal crime of bribery is the presence of a quid pro quo. If the impeachment investigation were to uncover one in his Ukraine dealings, Trump would be guilty of bribery, one of three crimes along with treason and high crimes and misdemeanors for which he could be removed from office under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Quid pro quo means this for that, the archetypal example being someone who provides the money for that action. Must this this for that be in the form of an explicit agreement? Must, that is, there be a meeting of minds between the two, or is a promise enough? That the payer of the recipient merely asked for something, a payment, the performance of an official act from the other. So in this article, uh, I'm going to allow you to read it, uh, the primer takes a look at why quid pro quo is a promise enough, and then talking about three different examples, quid pro quo is an agreement, as a promise, and then a solicitation. And finally, the promise or agreement must be explicit, but need not be expressed. The requirement that the quid pro quo be explicit is grounded again in the need to differentiate between campaign contribution and bribes. No matter the outcome of the proceedings, the Trump impeachment affair has already done great harm to America, driving its citizens further apart and thus making the realization of the founder's dream captured in another Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. From there, many, from, from many one, that much harder to achieve. The only consolation may be that this great harm is offset to some degree by what it teaches the citizens of all nations about bribery. So, Jay, next up, we had a, I thought, really nice, good, interesting and useful article from Mike Volkoff over on corruption, crime and compliance. Uh, uh, FYI, for those um, who didn't see Mike on television this week, uh, check out the uh, hearings Uh, represented um, a key witness this week. So always good to see one of our gang uh, in uh, on television. But on this blog post, he wrote about five steps uh, to improve board monitoring of a compliance. He included that uh, there needs to be uh, compliance expertise on the board. Uh, there needs to be an education on the importance of culture, certainly something that you and your colleagues talk about uh, quite a bit, Jay. But this is really at the board level. So uh, either bringing in a subject matter expert such as affiliated monitor or a CCO uh, needs to prioritize training and education on the importance of corporate culture uh, for the board. There need to be training and education initiatives uh, for the board that I just articulated. Uh, compliance dashboards, uh, something that the board can take a look at and see uh, if there are any changes, if there are anomalies, if there are red flags, if things are too high or too low but a way for a board to take a quick kind of snapshot and be able to have that snapshot over multiple uh, board meetings or time periods. And then finally, never forget the personal relationship. CCOs need to establish a personal relationship with key board members, obviously uh, the chairman of the compliance committee, if you have one, or chairman of the audit committee who may be over, uh, responsible for the oversight of compliance, uh, are key relationships. I once asked uh, 
Billy Jacobson, uh, what he did to establish, uh, he was the CCO at Weatherford who got them through their huge FCPA and Broglio. And I asked him how, how did he establish relationships? And he said, never uh, denigrate the power of a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. So um, think about that. If you're a CCO, do you know your board members? Do you know the head of the audit committee or the head of the compliance committee? And check out Mike's article. We, of course, link to it in the show notes. So, Tom, you had another stellar week of uh, guests on your uh, podcast, on the Compliance Podcast Network. And then you have a five-part series coming up next week. Can you tell us who you spoke to? So um, had some great podcasts this week. It started off Monday with Steve Lockchie of Cadwallader, Wickersham and Taft on just an incredible, and let me emphasize the word incredible resource to the uh, uh, kind of financial services community, including the co- corruption community, IEFCPA, called the Cadwallader Cabinet. It's a daily compendium uh, that's literally just stunning in its breadth and scope, so check it out. On innovation and compliance, I interviewed Christian Perez-Font, who founded Thinking, T-H-I-N-K-E-E-N, law firm. It's a law firm that focuses on data and compliance. Uh, so you should check that out. It's a really innovative law firm. And if you're a CCO, you need to uh, give them a look. Great Women in Compliance this week. Um, Mary Shirley had, begins a two-part uh, episode with Michelle Shapiro, um, who's been in uh, private practice uh, in white-collar defense, and she talks about that. Thursday, really for fun, Jay, I uh, 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 re- reposted my top podcast of all time, uh, which stunningly is Branding Lessons from Count Dracula. Um, I've had over, I think, 25,000 downloads of that podcast. So I thought it was an appropriate uh, Halloween um, posting. Uh, We, as in Tom and Jay, took a look at Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which posted last week after we recorded last week's this week in FCPA. So if you're a lover of all things Star Trek movies and the Wrath of Khan, it's the one for you. On the Sunday book review, I took a look at four recent offerings from the University of North Carolina Press that I thought were interesting for the compliance practitioner. And next week, Ronnie Feldman and I sat down for a five-part series on creative things you can do to celebrate Compliance Week 19. And uh, each day we talk about a different strategy or tactic uh, to um, increase communication, to cre- increase engagement, uh, and to, but frankly, increase uh, trust in your organization. It's a, it was a fun series. Ronnie, I always have a lot of fun with him. He, he comes at things as a completely different angle uh, than I do. Uh, he's a Second City comedian by trade who now helps compliance practitioners and chief compliance officers really bring a different angle to communication and training. So check it out. It's on uh, creativity and compliance, obviously on the Compliance Podcast Network, on all the channels, uh, FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, JD Super, Megaphone, YouTube, Spotify, uh, and, of course, iHeartRadio. So check it out next week and check out some of the great podcasts I had this week on the Compliance Podcast Network, Jay. So, Tom, uh, this is the part where we usually talk about the Astros and like my uh, idol, Bill Pelichek, are we just uh, on to the Rockets now? We're turning the page, or any final things to say about your boys of summer? So they uh, had their best Astro season of all time, uh, third straight year over uh, 100 wins, uh, number one in wins in the uh, in Major League Baseball. The um, 
only one of six teams to have three straight 100-win seasons. So I'm looking forward to next year. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with Garrett Cole as he's a free agent. It was a fun ride. Uh, I loved every minute of it, and I'm going to love it when uh, spring training starts. Again, uh, I'm uh, actually going to focus my uh, efforts, Jay, on the New England Patriots, who are still undefeated. Uh, And I'm going to see if they can run the table this year. Uh, If they can run the table with a 42-year-old quarterback, uh, you know, maybe you and I need to to let our respective teams know that we are available Um, and there may be a a place for us. So uh, lots of sports out there. uh, And I'm going to I'm going to focus on the NFL for a little bit. All right. Well, it's it's good that we're going to have our uh, attention focused on the same team. If you're just crawling back into the Tom Brady world, he sold his house uh, very close uh, to the stadium. And his uh, personal trainer, Alex Guerrero, also sold his house in the Boston area. That has led to speculation that with Tom Brady being a free agent at the end of the year, that he will no longer be a New England Patriot, which I scoff at. But the pundits are saying that maybe Brady and Guerrero come to California and relocate themselves with the San Diego, soon-to-be Los Angeles Chargers. So that's the palace intrigue that's happening in Foxborough. So I just wanted to bring you up to speed. You know, Jay, just having moved, I could certainly just say, you know, Sometimes wives just want to move. And uh, when a wife (laughs) wants to move, you move, as you well know. So um, I don't read too much into that uh, either. Um, But he's Tom Brady. He's the greatest quarterback of all time, and he's earned the right to do what he wants. So I think if we saw Jimmy G, who uh, had a great night last night against Arizona Cardinals, and we had the apprentice going up against the mentor, and if they both finished 16 or no, that would be a pretty cool World Series. Uh, no, World Series, Super Bowl. Sorry about that. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 178 for the week ending November 1st, 2019, the Lisa Fine Congrats to the Nats edition. Thanks for joining us, and have a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. We had two of my newest podcasts drop episodes on the Compliance Podcast Network this week. On Stake, a podcast on business leadership, Allison Van Hooser takes a look at why the pen is one of the great leadership tools. On the Walden Pond, Vince Walden takes a look at innovation and fraud risk, a detection and remediation. So check them out. They're both on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Jay, of course, is at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.